Hello and welcome to the Big Fish Podcast. I am your host, Saker Fisher, and today I welcome Cody Baker, a decorated U.S. Army veteran turned senior cyber defense incident responder, onto the show. Cody's journey started as a rifleman in the Army, where among his many responsibilities, he stood guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier, which I think speaks volumes of his dedication and discipline and ultimately who he is as a person today. After serving his country, he transitioned to various roles in information technology and security, including working with the FBI and Tricep Corporation. It was through many years of hard work and determination, Cody quickly rose through the ranks to become a senior cyber threat analyst at Centripetal and before he ultimately landed at his current role at AIG. This has been a long time in the making because like most security professionals, you are an exceptionally busy human. So first and foremost, I'm glad that we were finally able to make this work and thank you for so graciously carving out your time to speak with me today. Well, I know you're busy as well. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on the podcast. Yeah, great. I think one of the main reasons, obviously, you and I have known each other for for three years, and I have the privilege of not only calling you a, a former colleague, but a friend. And and for me, when I first met you, um, when I, you know, you and I worked together, what struck me the most about you is that you're just the consummate team player. And you're very introspective about um, who you are as a security professional in person, and you're constantly looking for ways to improve and, and asking for feedback. And I just really value that in a person is that you really have that growth mindset. So first and foremost, where do you think that kind of approach to life comes from? You know, I think part of my, you know, so a little bit on my background, I was in the the army active duty. Uh, I had the opportunity to serve as a member of the old guard in Arlington, Virginia. So I did firing party for funerals, honoring those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And then I also guarded the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And so during my time on active duty, I think a lot of that training of always asking, how can we be better? How we how can we pursue perfection? How do we work together as a team better? Not just individually, but how do we work together as a team better? And a lot of that just comes from asking your peers and asking those who you work for, right? So if to carry that over to the civilian world, if I'm on a call with you, Sagar, and, and we're working together and we're trying to secure some sort of cybersecurity deal or something like that. And after the call, it's always important to kind of just reach back out to you and say, hey, what what went well? What went bad? How can we improve? And then essentially, you just continue to build off of those uh, iteratively and you find yourself uh, in a very good spot. Backpedaling here. You started out your career in the army. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that decision? Because obviously it's it's not an easy decision. That is not a normal nine to five. Or do you come from a military family? Kind of paint a picture of how you made that decision. Sure. So grew up in middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Thought I had a chance at climbing maybe some sort of corporate ladder or getting in at some manufacturing plant and climbing the ladder there. So I did that. I joined a, a small company, a printing company, uh, working in the bindery, taking uh, sheets of paper that have been printed, cutting them up and put, you know, stapling them into books, those kinds of things. And I worked my tail off for a year. And when I asked for a, a promotion, head and shoulders above the, my peers there, was told, you know, well, people have been here for five, 10 years. There's no way you can get promoted. And I was like, all right, this isn't going to work. So at the time, my brother uh, was serving in the United States Army Reserves. I decided to go talk to an Army recruiter. 
back in the day, played a lot of Call of Duty. So army, <laughs> military, uh, always was kind of a you know cool thing to me, right? Your big brothers in the army play Call of Duty. So I talked to an army recruiter. Basically, I think like the same day, signed paperwork to join the infantry. Had no idea what I was doing. You know, went home, called my dad, called my brother, and they're like, "You are a dummy. <laughs> Why did you sign up for the infantry?" And I was like, "Oh well, the recruiter said it's going to be fun." So, you know, a little bit of young and dumb at play there, and uh, but it all ended up working out for the best in the end. So, as a sidebar, I'm laughing when you mentioned Call of Duty because I think that there's um. You know, I meet a lot of, of parents that talk about how scared they are of their kids getting into video games. And I'm like, I actually know many exceptional humans that I work with that are some of the most outstanding security professionals that I know uh, that grew up on video games. So I, I'm not too concerned about it. It would be like an honor if my if my kids took the career path that you guys have. So I'm laughing about that. Um, so you joined the U.S. Army. You served for how long? Uh, it's like a three and a half year contract or so. Um, so I was full time at uh, Arlington, as we kind of discussed earlier. And then after that, a little bit of a break uh, from service. I you know, was stationed at Fort Couch going to my local community college, decided that was a little boring. And that's when I decided to go back to the reserves while I was uh, using my G- GI Bill for college. And then let's talk about, because I, I find this truly fascinating about your background, Your how did it come to pass that you would be responsible for protecting um, and guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier? Because I think what a lot of folks don't realize is uh, just what the discipline uh, that goes into carrying on a role like that. It is, what, uh, 110, 130 degrees warm. <laughs> in the summer, and you're in full whites, and you are marching back and forth for an hour and there are people out there kind of trying to distract you. And so I'll, I'll let you take it from there. But yeah. you and I have talked about this at length. I think there's a lot more than, you know, that goes into it that people might not consider. Yeah. So basically after talking to that recruiter who was like, yeah, you want to go blow stuff up? I'm like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, went to basic, realized very quickly when a drill sergeant asked me if I needed help carrying my bag up a very large hill. And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be good. And he threw it all the way back down that maybe I wasn't exactly prepared for for what I was getting into. So about halfway through basic or maybe three quarters of the way through, uh, they pull a group of people to the side and kind of say, hey, based on your uh, ASVAP scoring, which is a standardized testing for the military that you take before you go to basic, uh, and based on your height, you know, you can qualify to go to the old guard. And I had no idea what the old guard was. Uh, basically, again, another recruiter within the army uh, was like trying to recruit people for the old guard, kind of explaining, hey, you know, you'll be in Washington, D.C. Uh, these are the types of duties you'll be doing. And I thought, you know, great, this is a good opportunity for me to go see the nation's capital, be on the East Coast, kind of get in the mix of things. Um, so I'm really happy that I decided to accept that. So when you do that, you know, you get done with your basic training, you go to your duty station. And basically when you go to the old guard, uh, you just get assigned to a company. So generally in the military, it's Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, uh, are the names of companies and it's about hundred to 200, uh, soldiers. And then within that company of soldiers, you get assigned to a platoon and that's about 20 people. And so each platoon has a different duty 
So majority of the soldiers at the old guard are doing funeral duties. And so when I say duty, this is what I mean. So first platoon is the escort element. These are kind of the soldiers that are lining up from the church and escorting the dead body to the gravesite. Second platoon is caskets. These are the ones carrying the casket and folding the flag. And then third platoon, which is always the coolest people uh, in the old guard, was firing party. Um, and basically, we would uh, just fire the 21-gun salute for funerals. When I was doing these duties, uh, another recruiter approached me and said, hey, do you want to come to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and uh, serve down here? And I thought, yeah, this is a great opportunity. It's a once-in-a-lifetime. And so that's that's kind of how it happened. I just went down there, did the rigorous uh, physical training and the uniforms and all that, and had the honor of guarding the tomb. And like you said, it, it does get hot, but you'd be surprised how fast your body gets used to the uniforms in the sun. The summertime, soldiers are wearing the long sleeve shirts in general with the uniform, with the combat uniform. And then being in the old guard, I was already used to wearing the wool uniform for about a year or two before I went down to the tomb. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like thinking, I'm like, I'm trying to picture how one wakes up every day with that kind of uh, responsibility to those soldiers who who passed on and their in their families and just like the mental I don't I don't like I don't know if I'd be able to wake up every day like that just sounds like it's really sad <laughs> really sad so yeah. like how did you how did you separate that or maybe you didn't and it was just an honor to do it and that's kind of how you were able to to continue to wake up every day knowing that that was going to be what was on store for the day a lot of times to be quite honest the funerals would be older folks so we would still get KIAs mm-hmm. you know, killed in action. And that those were a little bit more challenging, but not necessarily because you're sad, but because you want to perform well for everybody there that's honoring the, the, the fallen. You know, I think being separated and you don't necessarily have to know the person you're burying, right? Um, you can seek that information. Like if you want to know the name of the person being buried, you can all of that. But most of the time you're just there to do your job and your job is to honor them. And you kind of go there with a uh, shielded mindset of just, I am here to do the best that I can and make sure that when these uh, families are honoring the fallen and you know their battle buddies are honoring the fallen, that they're not thinking about any mistakes that somebody made during the procession, right? You want them to be able to just feel that they had the best chance to honor the fallen that that they are that they're there for. Yeah, and I can I'm like nodding because I I just that kind of mindset and that approach that you just, you know, kind of walked us through is absolutely how I see you approach the work that you do, just trying to make it the best experience for the people around you. So, kind of getting into the the world of technology, if you can remember, what was your first experience with technology and how did it impact you enough to say, hey, I'm going to make a career out of this. Like, this is a pretty <laughs> decent way to make a living and I'm going to make it my, you know, I say nine to five. It's it's not, it's never really nine to five, but how did you kind of make that pivot? Yeah. So I think there's been a few kind of changing points in my life. My first um, experience with technology was when I was uh, in elementary school. My mom had an old desktop computer and she used it to do like QuickBooks for her business. And I wanted to use that computer to game and I had no idea how to upgrade it in order to meet the minimum system requirements to be able to game. I think I wanted to play like Warcraft 3 
or something like that on it. And so I think I just like randomly went out to Best Buy, you know, saved all my um, allowance and bought like a random hard drive and just tried to plug it in. I had no idea that, you you know, you needed an operating system and all of this and that. And so like I ran into a lot of walls right away with uh, IT, you know, technology. And I think that kind of remains, right? Because that's an elementary task to kind of do something like that now to me. But as I continue to grow in the in the field, I feel like every day I'm just approaching a new technology or a new system that I have not before. And it's that kind of that same, you make those elementary mistakes. And that's kind of the impact that it had was that the first time I tried to do it, absolutely failed miserably. But then after kind of doing some reading, asking for help, you know, I think I had some neighbors that were a little bit more into computing than I was. My mom had some employees that were working for her that were definitely into computers, uh, kind of asking them like, hey, how do I upgrade this to get it to play this game? I was actually able to to achieve that goal. But man, the path to get there was was rough. And I think that just kind of set the standard and kind of should set the standard for almost everybody in IT. It is not an easy field, right? This is a field where things are changing consistently and you're running into new systems, you're running into new technologies. And uh, I think that's the biggest impact that that had on my my career is that knowing, hey, you could fail miserably this day, but two weeks from now, you're going to be able to succeed. Yeah, you definitely cannot have a defeatist attitude. Because as to your point, every day is different and you're kind of, I don't, you're obviously you're not starting back at square one, but to a certain degree you are, you know, each day kind of starting a step behind, which is, you know, maybe a a different professions. You're kind of like, I've got this, like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm sitting down every day and this is like my, you know, I know exactly how the day is going to go. But in technology, if you have that mindset, you learn very quickly that it's, it's not the case ever. Yeah, definitely. Would you say that that's kind of one of your... Uh, in addition to having a very inquisitive and growth mindset, but sort of not that defeatist attitude. Yeah. Like when you run into a problem, what do you, what do you, what's your process? I probably don't have the best process, but I kind of am a bull in a China shop is what I call it. Right. Or banging my head against the wall a thousand times until the wall breaks. (laughs) I definitely lack some of the skill sets that my colleagues have as far as being technically inclined or educated, but what I make up for that is in grit and just determination. So if I'm working on a problem, I'm consistently thinking of, okay, what are the possible ways to solve this problem? In my head, I might have three or four, right? Solutions. And I have no idea if any, just like, you know, as, a, as I was a kid putting a hard drive in my mom's computer, I have no idea if this is going to work or not. I have these four ideas and I'm like, of these four, one is likely to work. And so you know, what's the, what's the path of least resistance? And I'll normally try that one first. And then I'm like, okay, that, that failed. Then I'll go kind of next. I'll say, Hey, okay. The easiest one wasn't the right answer. Obviously generally as it isn't, what is the one that's likely to have the most success? And then I kind of take a step back and I'll immediately reach out to my social contacts and, you know, I'll reach out to my friends or colleagues and say, Hey, what do you think? Do you think this solution will work for this problem? I think this is the best solution that's gonna gonna work, and kind of get their feedback and readjust. And uh, you know, I'll continue to just do this kind of iterative process all the way down a thousand times until I get my way and the problem is solved. A lot of times, you end up on I say like solutions, you know, three or four solutions, 
sometimes you end up on like solution 15 and you're like, okay, this is totally a bandaid. It's a workaround, but guess what? It does what we needed to do and nobody else had solved this problem before. So you don't have to beat yourself up for it. Yeah. And so after the army kind of walk us through what were the various positions and roles that you held and kind of how you worked your way up the chain to where you are now today at AIG and you're a senior incident responder. Um, but it took a lot of work to get where you are today. So kind of where did you start, um, especially for the you know listeners who are, are just getting into this field and so they can see what that progression looked like? Yeah. Community college, got like gen eds basically, transferred after that to George Washington University for a cybersecurity program. Uh, during that time, I was able to earn my Security Plus certificate and get a job at the FBI help desk doing help desk. That was, you know, doing help desk was an eye-opening experience of just how hard it can be in IT and how hard IT is just for regular users. And it really can ground you to be able to see when we talk about earlier, like IT being hard, it's not just hard at high levels, it's hard at every level. And that's something everybody needs to understand. Uh, it's just a matter of how much practice and time you have in it. But to continue the journey, taking college courses, working for the FBI. Before that, I was doing physical security. Before the FBI, I was doing physical security at Department of State, You know, got my clearance. Um, that's what allowed me to get into the FBI at an entry-level IT job, basically based on the clearance. So after the Army, just kind of standing outside and guarding the Department of State, and I kind of knew that that would give me a clearance, which would open up doors, use that to get into the FBI, and then use those two items to get me uh, into a small aerospace engineering company, working on kind of like as an information system security officer and doing auditing and working on technical controls to comply with NIST 800-53 and NIST 800-171. I was very lucky there to have a mentor that really opened up the importance of good system administration. And I think that's kind of another, you know, we're talking about the first experience with technology. That was probably the first experience I had where I met a true subject matter expert in technology. And I could just tell right away that this guy was not like anybody I had worked with at the FBI. This guy was very skilled. He, he had knowledge. He had the skill set to troubleshoot problems he'd never trouble, uh, come across before. Mm. And I think that had a lot of influence on me as well. After that, uh, I was lucky enough to, you know, after I graduated college, so this is all kind of going on concurrently. Uh, I achieved the bachelor's, uh, earned the bachelor's from the George Washington University. Uh, I landed a job at Centripetal Networks, which is a threat intelligence company. Uh, they utilize a threat intelligence gateway, as you know, Sager, um, to deploy threat intel en masse at, uh, across multiple of their uh, customer sites. And so what I learned here was basically the skills needed to threat hunt and to make something from nothing, which kind of sounds crazy, but... Uh, this was reinforced later on in my career when I was going, I'm going for my master's right now. I took GCIA, a SAN cert for uh, incident analysis. And uh, a lot of what I learned at Centripetal was reinforced there in an educational world. And so that, that also has a huge impact too. Mm -hmm. That ability to just go in and look at the raw logs and say, 
what are these raw logs telling me? What are these net flows telling me? What are these uh, Windows event logs telling me? And kind of drawing a conclusion or a story and a timeline from logs and then being able to translate that to humans so that you can convey what's occurring uh, to others. And I think that's part of the major reason why I was able to land a job at AIG as a senior incident responder is just my my skills in working with Splunk and uh, the ability to convey with ease at this point now in my career with ease what was happening within those logs. Yeah, I think it's one thing, and I hear this time and time again, speaking to security professionals, it's one thing to, to go to school and sit in a classroom and and you know hear this information and take it in, but it is quite another to be able to put it into practice. And therein yeah. lies a lot of what the disconnect is, you know, I think when people are like, oh, you know, this is an entry level position. And by entry level, they mean you need to have at least five years of experience. Right. And it's like, that's the problem that I think we're running into right now is that entry level in cybersecurity and technology is not what one consider entry level in another, you know, industry. Um, So how do you think we go about overcoming that significant gap while we wait for, you know, those recent graduates to get caught up to speed. Yeah, well, I'm going to be a little harsh here and say that uh, graduates should be doing these skills on their own. Mm. They should be doing projects. Uh, Something that I learned from my colleagues at Centripetal was have your own side projects. Don't just rely on your job training. Don't just rely on your college. You need to be able to do this on your own. You know, so at home, set up some access points, you know, some ubiquity access points, set up a ubiquity controller, set up a, you know, an onion server and take some logs from that. Uh, there's so many things you can do. And the reason why that's considered entry level is because that's just the start, right? That's your base foundational of getting into the industry or working with those tools is you should at least have the knowledge of, or the skills to be able to read the manuals and kind of configure these things. And so I would say, Yes, it is hard for new employees to get into cybersecurity, but also the path the pathway to do it is out there. And, and I think you know spending the time to set up your own uh, lab environment or you know even administrating your own home network is a great way to gain some of that experience if you don't actually have the years. That's kind of what separates. So when I talk about this first person that really made an impact on me at this aerospace engineering company. He was a true, or is, he still is, a true, passionate person about system administration and technology. So work wasn't nine to five, like you said earlier. Work was, I have this project and problem and I need to solve it. And time didn't matter. Um, And we find that too in my colleagues at Centripetal that were outstanding. You know, one of the guests you had on this podcast before, Chris Haller, same exact way. It's not about working nine to five. It's about, I have a project and I'm going to do what it takes to get done. And I think a lot of people think you go to school, you go to college, you get your, your, you know, your security plus cert or whatever, that means you're ready. But unfortunately in this industry, it takes a lot more work than that. And now again, that sounds a little harsh, but you almost have to compare, you know, the pay and, you know, what are, what are athletes doing? What are CEOs doing? Do you think they're working nine to five? Do you think they just went to college and said, hey, I'm just going to sit through this hour and a half class, go home, do 10 minutes worth of homework and be done? No, these athletes and leaders in our industries are 
spending countless hours outside of business hours to to be the best that they can be. And I think with that mindset in our industry, you will be successful and not just mildly successful, you'll be vastly successful. Yeah. And I think it's hard, right? Like when you come home from work and the last thing you want to do is just go back to doing, you know, working on a project that you're working on before, like you want to turn on Netflix. And <laughs> but I've always maintained that it's never like a lot of people refer to that as sacrifice. And in my mind, if you're truly passionate about something, it shouldn't be viewed as a sacrifice. Um, it should be something that, you know, that wakes you, you know, that is invigorating for you. And so obviously I'm not discounting the challenges of, of, you know, you have family, you have kids and, um, but I think the, the long-term benefits of putting in that work early and, and really, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, I, you can't even measure it because when I first got into the industry, as I've talked to you about it before, I literally knew nothing. And the way that I was, I was 29 years old, almost 30, and I was working with 22 year olds that knew more about tech than I did. And I was just like, this is, you know, I need to take control over, you know, the, the future of my career. And I just would watch YouTube videos and literally at night, just like constantly ingesting knowledge and in an effort to try to bridge that gap as soon as I could. And it just, it helped so much. And I, you know, to your point, I, I reached out to people because there's a lot of smart people in this industry and just said, can you help me? And I think that that, you know, was tremendous for my career. And it's it's hard, I'm not going to lie, but it's it's definitely the best decision that I ever made personally for, for my career. Yeah. So just we're looking back and kind of reflecting on the various projects that you've worked on, what have been some of the most that have been the most rewarding and that you're the most proud of? Yeah. So... There's a lot, I think, for projects specifically to technology. I think working at Centripetal and helping to invent new technologies releases more endorphins in my brains than anything that I've ever experienced in my whole life. You know, when you see a problem and you can solve it, that is so rewarding. So that's on a personal kind of rewarding level, mm -hmm. uh, inventing things and kind of Sometimes I would even group in when I learn things as well. So like when I'm taking a, a SANS class or if I'm, you know, doing an in-house class at AIG, if I learn something, it's like you've just unlocked the secret to, a, you know, a mystery that was unknown before. It's kind of like problem solving as well there. You get a huge dopamine rush from that. Impacting others. There's a lot of times where I will work my butt off, right? So... At every single job, I try to make an impact. With the FBI, I always tried to close more tickets than anybody else. I was really proud of that. I was able to do that a lot. At my aerospace engineering job, I was able to rewrite policies and audit and could work with the technology side of things to really learn and implement controls that made sense. And I was really able to help them as a business achieve some really high levels of security, and that feels good. At Centripetal, we had hospitals for customers. And when you find, you know, you're doing your threat hunting and you find default settings on machines where they're calling home to China because the original uh, configuration where they were supposed to get their updates from, you know, had changed, but the host hadn't got that update, but it was now calling home to some random Alibaba server or something in China. That stuff is just invigorating. Uh, again, it's like you're cracking the case. Everything's a big mystery. 
And so when you solve that, it, it's very rewarding. At AIG, I, th- I really want to take that those skill sets across all of those that I've learned and kind of combine them all together. How can we build better detections? How can we convey our story better? So how can I convey to management cybersecurity incidents that we've come across, the risk, what the controls were that we put in place to correct those risks? And you know, when you start to to do that and use multiple tools, it gets to be kind of this giant puzzle where you're trying to fill in the pieces uh, to do that, to achieve the goal of making an impact, right? We got to use a little bit of uh, logs from tool A. We got to use a little bit of Intel from the CIT, uh, CTI team. We got to use a little bit of uh, stories and and uh, open source news and kind of put it all together and make an impact. Those are kind of some of the highlights of my career and honestly of my life, you know, just like an athlete, like we were saying earlier, this isn't just a career for me. This is my life, right? When you get home and you do want to sit down and watch Netflix, you just something in the back of your mind goes, I should just grab my laptop while I'm watching Netflix and start poking at things. So how do you deal and I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this question, but how do you deal, I guess, with the enormity of it all? Because you wake up every day and you sit down and you're like, this task is finished. Like we are, we are 100% secure, like good job, <laughs> like we are done. So like, how do you, you know, like continue to keep putting in the same amount of effort day in and day out? Like what, what's the driving force behind that? Because you're never done and you'll, you'll, you never will be done ever there was always going to be a new zero day. There's always going to be something else that that pops up uh, that needs to be taken care of. And you kind of like, once you finish something, you have that sense of accomplishment. Inevitably, like you're going to get a ping on your email. <laughs> something something new is, and exciting has popped up to ruin your day. Yeah, exactly. But that's the, that's the high we're chasing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like you, you run a 5K, all of a sudden you want to run a 10K, you run a 10K, you want to run a half marathon, you run a half marathon, you want to run a marathon, you're in a marathon, you want to run the Boston marathon, right? Yeah. So it's just that same, you know, that same level of passion, I guess, or drive or whatever the motivating factors are, whether that's the people you work with, or, you know, it's coming from internal and you just like to learn or challenge yourself. It can lead to burnout. You do have to be careful. Mm. I think that's something that's kind of being talked about a lot in our industry right now about burnout. I think burnout occurs when your problems are consistent and you're facing the same problems over and over and you're not getting new problems. And I think that's one thing that has kept me so attracted to cybersecurity is that one day it is two-factor has a problem and then the next day it's a phishing campaign and then the next day it's a zero day on a web server or whatever it might be. Every day the problem is different. And so for me, that keeps it fresh. I would prefer that personally. You know, I don't want to be sitting at a at a job just doing the same repetitive tasks over and over. And so I think it's part of the sickness of the people that are are really successful in our industry is that they are addicted to the the variations and the problems that come your way. Yeah. And I think you have to measure success by looking at the impact you did make on the problem, right? And so you're never going to be at 100% security, like you said. But if this problem has been going on for a year, two years, whatever it is, 
and you can make it 90% better, I mean, you've just shored up a lot of security, uh, you know, a lot of those cybersecurity holes that have been in place for a long time. And then you can better understand the outliers. What are the 10% that can't comply with whatever control or technology you're trying to fix? Um, and then you can monitor for those much easier. It, it becomes a, a more malleable task, I think. That's such a good point. You really do have to go back and reassess or how what you consider to be success. Because I think so many times we want this like nice packaged, you know, with a bow on top and it's like, that's what success is. And I think in our industry, to your point, it may be 90% and maybe 85% and you just kind of have to take those wins when you can. And I think that was really hard for me to reconcile at first as a, an exceptionally type A person. <laughs> um, and I know you are too. So you yeah. definitely have to like take a step back and say, all right, like what, before you start a big project, like what's going what's to be successful? Like, and it's, it's vastly different from, you know, a, a doctor or a lawyer. It's, you know, for a lawyer, it's winning the case. For a, a doctor, it's a successful surgery. And um, for us, it's just, it's, it's very different. So I think that's like a really good point for people that are just getting into this because you can really sure. get really down on yourself if you have a different expectation. Yeah. And I think we do see that a lot in our juniors in our industry where, they feel like because they can't do something to a hundred percent, they don't even want to try, mm. you know, they don't attempt to do the CTF. They don't attempt to do a hard work project because it is unique to our industry. I mean, even outside of cybersecurity, if you think of engineering, right, if you're a software engineer, like you're just building a product that you think is the best at that point in time, a year later, you might've been totally wrong, but that's okay. Right. That's totally okay. It's same with cybersecurity. It's like if you do a CTF and you only answered 10% of the questions and you couldn't get 90% of them, as long as you learned something, that's all you want, right? Like as long as you spent the time to read about something, learn about something, ask somebody about something, it's a great chance to socially network. That's a success. And I think what happens a lot of times for the juniors in our industry is, is that they will see the Mount Everest above them and say, I can't do that. Mm. And so they're kind of just happy with where they are and they won't progress or maybe they won't even, you know, continue to apply for jobs or whatever it might be. Yeah. So looking back on your career, is there anything that you would change or do differently? No, I don't think so. I think obviously if I could skip the whole army experience and just go right to college, that would be, you know, I'd be four or five years ahead in my life right now, financially, probably military doesn't really pay that well, but that's okay. Part of that also probably trained me to be who I am today. And so the path I took was probably the best one for me. I don't know if I would suggest it for other people. I think everybody has their own path to get to a certain place. Mm. And for me, that path just ended up working out and I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. So it's hard to look back and say, you know, oh, I should have done X, Y, or Z when you know, I, I love, I love my job now. I love my previous job, you know? And so it's like when you've had three, four or five years in an industry and you actually enjoy what you like, you feel pretty lucky, you know, and you don't have too many regrets. Yeah. So looking forward kind of into the future, what are you most excited about? Are there any like emerging technologies or obviously, oh, yeah. you know, AI is a big topic of conversation. I guess we could dive into that. Like, is that something that you're using and how, if so, how are you using it? 
Yeah, so AI is amazing. I absolutely love it. Mm, I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I said earlier, my problem solving skills is always the path of least resistance first and AI generally can help us with that, right? So right now I'm taking my master's in cybersecurity. Immediately following that, I will be pursuing either certificates or a degree in machine learning or AI. I think it's going to be that big for our industry. Right now, I'm currently using it mostly in just a scripting state. You know, hey, write me a Zeek script to go do X, Y, and Z, or write me a PowerShell script to go do A, B, and C. And I just love how fast it can spit it out. And you can just ask it to change something if you don't like it. I love that it can summarize articles as well. It's super useful if you have, you know, five, 10 pages worth of information. You just want the TLDR. (laughs) I love it for that. I think for a professional, so that's kind of more on the personal side of things at a, at a professional or corporate type use of AI. I think that if the right people pay attention and put the right resources towards it, I do think that a lot of the security and engineering tasks that have been rigorous in the past, you know, triaging alerts, things like that will be much better handled by an AI. I think that they can look at many points of data and make a decision potentially better than a human. Right now, I don't think that's the case, but I think if we get some people who know and understand cybersecurity, know and understand a lot of the tools that are already available, what those logs look like coming out of those tools, and then work with people who are very intimate with machine learning and AI, I think that there's going to be some very powerful tools coming out in the next five, 10 years that could really help to um, fill some of the the job role gap that we're experiencing in our industry. Yeah. See, I, I have a hard time articulating how I feel about it because the communications major in me is like the word, you know, the lost art of language <laughs> and writing is, uh, you know, and my, my sister is in journalism and she, she got her degree in English from Vassar and then BU journalism. And, and both of us are kind of mourning for that, you know? Um, but I do feel if you don't use it, you are in some capacity, you're going to, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I'm still personally trying to kind of articulate and reconcile my own feelings around it. But would you recommend for individuals that are getting into the industry for that to be a focus of theirs as well? Oh, absolutely. If you're studying IT or engineering or cybersecurity, 100% on your personal time, you should be looking into AI and machine learning. There's a lot of good resources out there. You can find them, ask around. They change all the time. So I'm not going to name any specific ones off the top of my head right now. But I think that if I was a young person or a transitioning career person into one of the IT fields, I think you have to be very cognizant that five, 10 years from now are landscape for careers will not look the same as it does today. And so in order to be successful today and tomorrow, I think it's important that you add that AI machine learning to your tool belt and make sure that you understand the best ways to implement it. Additionally to that, you also don't want to be tricked, right? So there's a lot of AI machine learning promises. People use it as buzzwords. I think 
a little bit of formal education in those fields will help you understand, is this realistically possible? Is this, is this a tool that's telling me it's going to use AI to do A, B, and C? Is that really realistic? Is that possible? How is it doing that? What methods is it using? And I think that if you just do a little bit of self-education, that can go a long way, um, especially when you're having those conversations with people. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, we could have a whole other podcast episode about AI and maybe we will. Sure. Because um, there's a lot There's a lot to consider there. But I guess looking kind of what's next for you, is there anything, any certs that you're working on yeah. right now? Like what is exciting you right now that you're currently working on? Yeah. So GPEN right now for SAN. So getting the penetration testing cert. And then I have a purple team certificate after that. And then basically just kind of continuing my master's. And as I stated before, 100% making a pivot after I get my master's in cybersecurity to machine learning and AI. And so I'm a believer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to spend all of my resources, you know, my personal resources on, on learning about that. And I figure even if I fail uh, and AI doesn't take off, at least, you know, machine learning and being able to identify outliers and logs and understand those algorithms and, and how those function works are still just as important to my job today as it will be in five years, right? So it's a little bit of a gamble, but uh, that's where I see our future. Yeah, no, and I, I have come to really love and appreciate about that when you, about you. When you love something, you go all in, right? You are like, it consumes your mind and you are just like, it, a tunnel vision is not the correct word because you're very good at um, having a, a balance and, and, you know, carrying on other responsibilities. But I love how passionate you get about something when you're working on it. And I think that makes you, you know, the professional that you are today. Um, so with that said, in, in closing, where if people, you know, want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you to kind of, you, you shared a lot of really helpful information, I think, especially for the younger generation that's looking to, to make this a career path. So where's the best way to, to get in touch with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best way. Honestly, I don't always check it all the time, but I will check it eventually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, LinkedIn, Cody Baker, um, you'll see me there. Uh, that's probably the best way. And then also, if you're local to the Northern Virginia area, um, you know, going to security conferences here, if you see me, just pull me to the side and say hi. I'd love to talk with uh, some of the people local here in Northern Virginia and kind of strengthen my social network here. So don't be afraid to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cody. This has yeah. been really fun. We thank could you. go on and on as always, but you'll definitely have to have you back on the show and um, maybe we'll have that Chris Haller join and we can have a whole <laughs> oh, other conversation about AI. <laughs> I would love that. I really would. You I guys really can convince that. me because right now I'm just like, it's too much. It's too much for me to, I had to write these kids need to know how to write, right? But Absolutely. it's you know it's changing. The world is changing, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get on the bus sooner or later. So you guys can convince me. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds like a plan to me. Cool. Thanks, Cody. Yeah. Take care. Thank you.